Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 12. In our studies in the book of Jeremiah, we have noted uh, that uh, Jeremiah is particularly relevant for our situation in America today, that his, na his nation was uh, in a very sad state of decline, faced a very desperate future, and uh, the real problem was the sin of the nation, and that the message that uh, God gave to the nation through Jeremiah is what we need to hear as Christians and need to re-echo to our nation. Uh, we looked uh, last Sunday night at Jeremiah chapter 7 where we had the great temple sermon of the prophet. And we saw that the first king that he began to prophesy under was King Josiah, a young boy king, and that Josiah's heart was tender toward the Lord. And he began to, uh, even as a teenager, seek to bring about reform in the country to usher back in true religion. Uh, he dealt with the false idolatry, had the idols cut down. He dealt with their priests. He began the restoration of the temple, which had fallen into disrepair. And in the process, an old priest, Hilkiah, rediscovered in the the rubble of the temple, the book of the law, and brought it to the king. The actual Old Testament up to that point had been lost, apparently, through disuse. And as uh, uh, King Josiah read this, why his heart was smitten with the sin of the nation and how terribly they had violated God's laws, he sent to Huldah the prophetess, and asked if there was any way that the curses pronounced on such a disobedience as theirs could be averted. And she said, no, there was no way. But that because of the tenderness of his heart, and that he had humbled himself and had rent his garment when he read these words, that it would not come in his day. Well, he wasn't satisfied, and he continued his efforts to reform the nation. And uh, there was an external response on the part of the people. They began to flow to the temple. He reinstituted the Passover, and there was not such a Passover since the days of Samuel held in Judah. And uh, at this time of seeming great revival, God calls on the prophet Jeremiah to go stand in the gate of that temple as these crowds were coming and to cry out against the hypocrisy of it. And to say, don't think to say within yourselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is these. As if uh, this external worship could save you. Thoroughly amend your ways and your doings. It's not enough to deal with those idols that are public idols. You must deal with the idols in your heart and the idols in your home, your everyday life. And we saw that at that time he had the support of the king to such preaching. But between chapter 7 and chapter 12, and we're jumping through the book, and we'll be uh, indicating the chapters to be covered in the record ahead each week. In between, something tragic had happened to the nation. Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, 
had gone out to battle. He was one of the superpowers of the day that surrounded Judah. He went to a very famous battle of Carchemish. But in the process, as he comes with his troops near Judah, against the warning of God, impulsively, King Josiah takes his troops out into battle against Pharaoh Necho. And Josiah, the young king, seeking to reform the nation, is killed. He is succeeded by his son, Jehoahaz, who was a very weak king and within three months had been deposed by the king of Egypt. And his brother, Jehoiakim, set up in his stead over the nation. Now it's at that point that this prophecy in the twelfth chapter of Jeremiah is given. And uh, the first thing that we have here in this troublous time of the nation, when the nation is surrounded by these superpowers that are warring with each other, Egypt, on the decline, Assyria on the decline, Babylon on the rise. And here in the middle of it all is this little nation of Judah now. Well, there's a great question in Jeremiah's heart. And he raises this question to God. That's the first thing that we have in this 12th chapter. But in raising the question, he first utters a conviction that's very important. He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord. He said, God, I know that you always do the right thing, that you are just, that you are righteous. I understand that, and I'm convinced of that. Now, that's an important starting point when you get ready to question God's dealings with you. Always start off by saying, God, I know you don't make any mistakes. And I know that you're fair and just and right. That's the starting point. Anytime you've got a question about God's dealings with you. And he starts like that. But then he brings this question to God. And here's his burning question. He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments, of your ways. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? It's God I don't understand. Here in the nation and even in these surrounding nations, the wicked men prosper. Now, it's not that that's the general rule. Actually, As a general rule, wicked men don't prosper. The way of the transgressor is hard. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. But there are enough exceptions around to that rule to raise the question. Why these exceptions? Why do the wicked ever prosper, and why do some wicked so obviously prosper? And this really troubled him. You remember it troubled David in the 37th Psalm. That was a great problem that David 
poured out before the Lord. It troubled Asaph in the 73rd Psalm, and he pours his heart out. And God gives some interesting answers in those Psalms, and you'll want to read those. But let's see how he deals with Jeremiah here with this question. He mentions also, as part of his question, God's part in this. Uh, You need to understand that Jeremiah was a good Presbyterian, like all biblical writers. And uh, he says in verse 2, Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. God, uh, you're in control of everything. You planted them. You've allowed them to prosper. Your blessing has rested upon them in some respect, at least in a... Uh, financial or material uh, respect. They have brought forth fruit. They've been successful in their schemes and strategies. And you're in charge of everything. And this puzzled him. Maybe what uh, had really brought all of this to a head in Jeremiah's life was the plot on Jeremiah's life that had been made by the men of his own hometown, Anatol. We're told about this in the last part of the 11th chapter. Look at chapter 11, verse 19, where he tells us that God revealed to him a plot on his life. He says, I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut off him from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. God, I've committed my case to you. Now let's see what you're going to do with them, my enemies. And God says this, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Of the men of Anatoth that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, that thou die not by our hand. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. Uh, The young men shall die by the sword, and their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth, even the year of their visitation. He says that. He says, I'm going to take care of it. But then he doesn't do it. There's delay. God says, I will punish the wicked men who seek your life. But they go on in their machinations. And this puzzles Jeremiah. Why the delay? Now, we see his question. Backed with this conviction that God always does right. And yet this burning question. And he has a comparison between himself and them. In verse 3 of chapter 12, But thou, Lord, knowest me, Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. God, you know that I've honestly tried to walk with you and that you're letting these things happen. Why do you permit them to endanger me? And then his petition is growing out of this question. 
verse 3b, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. God, you've planted them, now pull them out. Pull them out like sheep who are to be slaughtered and get them ready and slaughter them. Stop the delay. That's my request. Does that sound like a Christian request to you? We need to be careful before we would say that it's unchristian. You say, but Jesus said, pray for your enemies, bless those that curse you, uh, and despitefully use you, turn the other cheek, do good to them. That's true. But what we need to realize here is that the psalmist, uh, that Jeremiah, is not just praying about his own situation and his own personal attitude and wanting to be vindicated on his personal enemies. These are God's enemies. They're enemies to the Word of God and the message that God has sent him to bring. They're the nation's enemies. They're dragging the nation down. And maybe it's not unchristian at all to want to see God deal with that. Maybe that's a higher form of Christianity than most of us rise to. Really, his desire is very much like that expressed by the psalmist in what are known as the imprecatory psalms, the psalms where the psalmist calls down curses on his enemies. And when he does so, his real desire, it's not so much a personal thing, but you pick up his desire in a psalm like the 58th psalm, the last two verses. Verse 10 of Psalm 58. The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. In other words, they say, when God doesn't deal with it, when he lets it go on, this wickedness, and lets it prosper, why then men are misled. And they say, well, God is not a God of judgment, and I can sin with impunity. I'm not even sure there is a God. And they desired to see God's justice vindicated and a fear of the Lord spread throughout the world and throughout the hearts of men. And so they prayed, God, avenge your cause. Shake yourself. Arise out of your sleep. Show them that there is a God who rewards the righteous and who judges the wicked. They need to know it. And we need some relief. You find over in the book of Revelation, the saints, the glorified saints in heaven, it says their souls cry out under the altar and they say, How long, O Lord, before you will avenge our blood? That's not an unchristian prayer. What was it David said in the 139th Psalm? Do I not hate them that hate thee with a perfect hatred? Search me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. See if there's anything wrong with that kind of hatred. Lead me in the way everlasting. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. I was recently discussing with another elder in our church. Uh, 
the effect of uh, a local in our community store selling hardcore pornography right out in the public. Little child, little child had picked it up and walked over to her grandmother with it. Hardest core pornography I've ever seen anywhere. Right on the stands in your community. And the elder said to me, you know, he said, uh, what's wrong with us that we don't get incensed about that? You know what our grandfathers would have done? Our grandfathers would have gone and torn it all down and, and torn and fell the fellow that put it in there and ridden him out of town on a rail. And we read it and we say, mm, isn't that bad? What's wrong with us? Are we superior or are we inferior? Vice is a monster of so frightful mean that to be hated has but to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with her face. First we pity, then endure, then embrace. That's what's happened. We've had the moral edges knocked off of our conscience by the barrage of immorality and the values of society around us. Instead of being transformed, we're becoming conformed in our thinking to the world. So, Jeremiah wants God to do something about this wickedness. And that's his petition. It's not a selfish petition. It's based on the eternal truth of God's retributive action. As this burning question, let's see how God answers it. God's answer in verse 5, he begins. Surprising answer. He says, <clears throat> he, he as his remonstrance with Jeremiah, his rebuke of Jeremiah. He says, If thou hast run with footmen, and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of the Jordan? He says, Jeremiah, now you've been running with footmen. You've had competitors. You've had, you've had men up against you, and you've been running with footmen. But there's been something of an equality. And you're weary of the struggle you've been involved in. You've really, in a sense, uh, been running on an equal basis. Well, then how are you going to contend with horses? if you grow weary running with footmen. And if you've been in a relative land of peace, peace compared to what it's going to be, how will you do in the swelling of the Jordan? Now that could mean when the Jordan overflows its banks and when the flood comes in. But really probably it means how will you do when in those thickets of the Jordan those beasts that dwell there, when you have to contend with those lions, those wild beasts in a trackless waste, how will you do then? What's the implication? Jeremiah, it's been easy, old buddy. And you're tired of this? It's going to be much tougher. And if you can't take it now, you'll never take it then. Jeremiah, quit crying. Throw back those shoulders. Dig in those heels. Get on with the job. 
This isn't any child's play, being in my army, spreading my message, walking with me. Whoever said it would be easy? If you can't take these lesser trials, you'll never take the greater ones that are coming. We begin to see something here. The lesser test is designed to try us and prepare us for the greater tests that are coming. Don't let this kind of a thing throw you. When God does something and you don't understand, the whole Christian life is a life of having your faith tested. And God's always doing things that you don't understand, and you're never going to understand. But he does smaller things that you don't understand before he does the bigger things that you don't understand. And if those smaller ones throw you, how are you going to handle the bigger ones? They're to prepare you for the bigger ones. And so when your faith gets stretched, just trust him more. And say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you and I believe your word. And I'm going to walk with you. And then you're strengthened for the next test. It'll be tougher. We begin to see how God prepares his people for what's coming. What does God do to prepare his people for what's coming? How did he prepare Jeremiah? Well, you remember when he first called Jeremiah, he told him, Jeremiah, it's not going to be easy. I'm calling you to be my spokesman in a day when men are not going to listen. They are going to oppose you from the man in the pew to the man in the pulpit to the man on the throne, the prince. The religious leaders are going to oppose you. The people are going to oppose you. The political leaders are going to oppose you. Every person in the nation is going to stand against you. It isn't going to be easy. But I'm going to be with you. When God called you to be a Christian, what did he say? He said it's going to be easy. I hope whoever led you to Christ didn't tell you that. I hope they didn't say, now this abundant life, and I believe it is an abundant life, but I hope they didn't picture the abundant life as a life without any problems. It's a life of victory over problems and through problems. Which man of God in the scriptures didn't have problems? Jesus, when he called men to follow him, they said, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds there have nests. The Son of Man has not where to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? It's not going to be easy. He said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The servant's not above his master. If they've hated me, they'll hate you. You'll be persecuted of all men for my name's sake. That's the way he calls us. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The cross speaks of death. Our leader went to a cross. And he said, now you follow me down that path. He died for our sins. We don't die for someone else's sins, but we die to sin, we put ourselves on a cross, and it's costly, and we may die for our stand for Christ. Many, many, many Christians have in our own generation. So when he called us, he warned us that it wouldn't be easy. He began to prepare us right there. He called us to trust him as our Savior, a crucified and risen Savior, 
and he called us to surrender to him as our Lord. And then he promised to be with us. That was part of the preparation, just as he promised to be with Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah, they will oppose you, but I'll make you like a defense city and like a brass wall as long as you obey me and speak my words. And if you don't, I'll confound you in front of them. And he says to us, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but don't be afraid. Fear not men. Not a hair of your head shall perish without my permission. Not a sparrow falls without my permission. I'm with you to protect you, and the only thing that can touch you is what I let touch you, and I cause all things to work together for your good. When I let that happen, it's for your good. Then he took him through some smaller trials, as we can see. That was the third stage in his preparation. If you fail under those, if you faint under those, then where are you? Because they're meant to prepare us for the greater trials. That's why he doesn't give Jeremiah any sympathy here. Jeremiah doesn't get any sympathy from God. He just gets this seeming rebuke. It's designed to brace him, to tell him to quit whining. Hudson Taylor's father, James Taylor, he used to try to train his children to endure hardness. He'd have a big supper and everybody would be hungry, and then he'd look at him and say, Now let's see what you can deny yourself. Let's see who will refuse to eat what. And he taught them self-denial. wonder what trials you've been going through. What horses have you been running against? There have been a lot of horses running against us all, hasn't there? Has been that dope peddler. He's quite a horse. He's been running against us and our children for some years. There have been the sex exploiters. They've been running hard. There have been the financial problems and the family problems, the divorces and all of this. Many horses have been running against us. Are we growing weary of the battle? Think of the horses that have been running against our nation. The trials that our nation has had, designed to prepare us for the future trials. The Vietnam, the Korea, the energy crisis, the fuel crisis, all these things designed to get us ready. Has it accomplished it? Or have we fainted under these trials? Maybe a young person. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you've been in the church and you even have been in a Christian school, a sheltered atmosphere. If in that situation you haven't learned to resist temptation, but you've gone off on your approach to sin, you've played with it like I did when I was your age, how will you do in the swelling of the Jordan? How will you do when there's no more barriers and you're on your own? You think you'll stand against it then? We see God's answer, his remonstrance with Jeremiah. Second, his revelation of what was coming to Jeremiah and to the nation. And God gives us some feel of this in Scripture for ourselves. But to Jeremiah, verse 6, For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee. He says, The men of your hometown turned on you, that's nothing. Your own family is going to turn on you. And uh, for the nation, he says in verse 12, 
The spoilers are come upon all high places throughout the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. God says, I'm going to bring a nation against you that's going to tear this nation apart. And all of your efforts to avoid it, all of your political strategies will come to naught. And verse 13, they have sown wheat, but they shall reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but they shall not profit. They've sent ambassadors to the Near East, and it won't work. And they sent ambassadors to the Far East, and all of that pain won't profit. Because the basic problem, and he gives the reason, verse 7, I have forsaken mine house, I have left mine heritage, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Why? Mine heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest. It crieth against me. I've given up my heritage because my heritage has turned against me. Oh, and you see the broken heart of God there. But here's preparation. Here's what's to come as he reveals it. And as you read the scripture, you pick up that the people of God don't have an easy time ahead. And that the forces of evil will gather more and more. And that there are dark days ahead for the people of God. And as you look at our nation, you can begin to see it for our nation in a very real way. But he does speak of retaliation on Israel's enemies. Verse 14, Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And then he speaks of ultimate restoration of the nation. Verse 15, It shall come to pass... After that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. It shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord." I not only will restore my, uh, restore my people, but I will even bring the Gentiles in to be a part of my true people, which is why we're here today. So there was the promise of ultimate compassion, ultimate victory. That's the same way God prepares us. He's promised us ultimate victory, and he's promised us that he will ultimately deal with his enemies and our enemies. Payday someday. Payday someday. He's delaying, meanwhile, to give men time to repent. But he will not delay forever. Payday someday, but in the long run, his people will be restored and ultimately blessed in every sense of the word. That's how God would prepare us and nerve us for what's coming. The lessons? A rebuke from God. Don't be weary. You're running with those horses and you're growing weary, the opposition, the trial of your faith, dig in. Dig into the Word. Dig into God. Trust Him. Obey Him. Throw those shoulders back. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Rebuke yourself. Quit crying, you baby. 
Get on about your business of living the Christian life like you're supposed to. Trust the Lord. Rebuke yourself. Second, he puts us through rough trials. And every trial you go through, say, this is for my good. This is toughening me. This is getting me ready for what's coming. God, I need training. Third, we have his reassurance. And keep reminding yourself of that reassurance. That he will be with us. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the resource, their great resource, of course, is the Lord himself. They that wait upon the Lord, they that serve the Lord, he will be with them. We had a young lady with us, Grace Berry Brown, a young black lady. She wanted to go to the mission field. She kept applying. And how discouraged she got. She couldn't get into Zaire. She couldn't get into Liberia. But each time, the Lord would give her a word, a promise from the word that would strengthen her. And the first time she was turned down, uh, three years ago, to, could not go to Zaire, this word came to her heart, this promise. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Yea, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. And then when she was turned down again to Liberia, uh, they couldn't get a visa, this word came to her heart. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you, whithersoever you go. Joshua 1.9. Finally, after three years, she got her visa and she was sent. She arrived at her little mission station, mission hospital, back in the uh, dark parts of Africa there. And as she's ushered in and she meets her British roommates, two nurses, they have her bed there and say, this is your bed, and over her bed are two scripture verses. Those two scripture verses that they knew nothing of, but the Lord knew. The Lord was preparing her, and that test will prepare her for another one. And the next time she's tried, she'll think back about how God was faithful and fulfilled his word. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy trials to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Have you leaned on him for repose? There's that old pale horse that you'll have to contend with, isn't it? whose rider is death. 
Have you leaned on Jesus for that? If not, why not now? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, Christian, if you've been complaining, if you've been as Jeremiah questioning the Lord's rightness in dealing, questioning his ways with you in the trials, heed this word. Tell him you trust him afresh. You understand the purpose of these trials, to teach you to learn, to draw on his resources, that when you're weak, then you have his strength when you rely on him. Tell him you're trusting him for future strength and you're ready for future trials in his strength. And if you have never trusted him as your savior, what will you do when that pale horse comes riding along? What will you do in the swelling of the Jordan? Won't you trust Christ right now as your Savior and Lord? Surrender to him. Pray in your heart if you are willing to really commit your life to Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming into this world to deal with my enemies. And Lord, I trust you to deal with that old pale horse of death, to be my Savior. Lord, I understand the cost, that it won't be easy. And I surrender to you as my Lord right now. Come into my life. Make me a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Amen.